Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. Today on the program, SOCON controversy. My point of view is that marriage is exclusive to a man and a woman. A potential conservative leadership candidate's views on gay marriage get widespread condemnation by other party members. Should he be allowed to run in the race? And what place do social conservatives have in that party? The social conservative candidate who came in fourth place in the last race and is now backing this controversial candidate, Brad Trost, defends those views. And we'll get a response from the first and only openly gay conservative MP, Eric Duncan, and from the former deputy leader, Lisa Raitt. Then, blue bombshells. Running for leader is a, an absolutely 100% all-consuming enterprise, like nothing I've ever uh, imagined. Uh, and so um, I made the decision I wasn't prepared to do that. Pierre Polyevre is out. Ron Ambrose is out. Jean Charest is out. Why are so many star candidates heading for the exit? And will Peter McKay now be coronated the next leader? Could Stephen Harper make a comeback? The Scrum joins us with former Harper campaign director Jenny Byrne and CTV pollster Nick Nanos. Plus, gun ban. Too many lives have been lost to gun violence and Canadians are calling for change. It's more than time to strengthen gun control in Canada. The government promises to ban assault weapons, but is that really the right way to curb gun violence? How can they stop the flow of illegal guns across the border? MPs are here to debate that. All that plus everything you need to know about Parliament, which returns tomorrow. Former NDP leader Tom Mulcair weighs in on the scrum. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. You don't think that being uh, gay you don't think, what, do you think that's a choice or do you think it's biological? I think it's a choice and it, it's, uh, how people are behaving, it's one thing. I think government has responsibility to encourage uh, the, uh, the traditional uh, value that we have uh, had for the past years. So that's the kind of SOCOM issues that I would bring uh, right. as a leader. So being gay is a choice? Closing down access to abortion clinics? Look, these are just some of the controversial views of the former Harper staffer, now potential conservative leadership candidate, Richard Decari. He told me all about it on CTV's Power Play last week. And as you saw, the clips went viral and the response was swift. There was immediate and widespread condemnation within the Conservative Party, some calling Mr. Decari ignorant and bigoted. There are now calls for the party to ban him from running, but can they really do that? And is there a place for these views in the Conservative Party? Since I've already spoken to Mr. Decari in that widely watched interview, and we still don't know if he'll make it formally into the race, let's bring on a long-standing social conservative voice to defend those views. But I want to also say that the only openly gay Conservative Party MP, Eric Duncan, is here with us, and he's watching our conversation, and he'll come on after to respond. But joining us now is the National Campaign Chair for Richard Decari, and the man who came in fourth himself in the last Conservative leadership race, Brad Trost. Mr. Trost, good to uh, have you on the program. Do you, did Mr., do you stand by Mr. Decari's comments that being gay is a choice and other comments? Look, he sincerely believes it. It's, uh, I think, uh, something that should be debated. And uh, I think it's a, a viewpoint held by a lot of people in the Conservative Party. I don't think it really impacts how you view public policy. So I don't see what the problem is. That's Mr. Decarier's uh, viewpoint. 
So I don't see why that's a problem if you're running for the conservative leadership. Conservatives essentially called him a bigot. Uh, they said he's ignorant. Uh, they said that his views on same-sex marriage oppose what the conservatives voted for in their own party in 2016. Uh, and that may disqualify him. What do you make of that? Well, that's factually incorrect. The Conservative Party used to have a position in defense of traditional marriage. Now it has no position on either way. It's a free vote issue. And if it's a free vote issue, Mr. de Carrier is in his rights to hold to the traditional historic position that the Conservatives have held for the majority of their career. These are political opponents who are trying to run against Richard, and so I think uh, what they say should be taken with a grain of salt. Do you think he should be allowed to run? Because I've heard a lot of people are saying no, that, that his views, again, often described as not just divisive and ignorant, but bigoted uh, and offside with what it means to be conservative. Peter McCain, Michelle Rumpel Garner, uh, uh, Pierre Polyevre, uh, Aaron O'Toole, the list goes on. They don't want this guy as part of the party. But yes, but these are people who are running against him. If he runs and is successful, he can take votes away from these candidates. He can represent an element of the party that they aren't representing. Even if he isn't winning, they then have to appeal to these voters. And so it changes their election strategy. So I think you should take with a big grain of salt these criticisms. Also remember, if Richard does well in the race, these same people who are criticizing him are going to come back and ask for his support later. I've seen this done in Ontario, provincial conservative races in Alberta, and in the last federal race. Take these things with a grain but of salt. You, you know, what I hear, sir, is that even, and we have, we have the first openly gay conservative MP coming up, they're insulted by this, that the law in Canada is, supports same-sex marriage. A guy running against what the law is, against what the party stands for, does that person have a place in the Conservative Party of Canada? He's not running against what the party stands for. The party has no position currently on gay marriage. He supports the position that the party used to hold and held for many years. Look, Jean Charest, when he did his polling and decided not to run for the conservative leadership, came up with an answer that over a third of current conservatives are still opposed to gay marriage. This is a position that is mainstream in the conservative party. It was a position that was held by the party officially under Stephen Harper for most of his time. And then Why it was revoked. To be, to, be to, to be fair, in 2016, they voted against that. that but our position, now is, our position is now a free vote. Mr. Trost, but you know that conservatives are going to look at you and go, oh, come on, man. Rolling back abortion rights, saying that you don't believe being gay is a biological identity, but it's like a choice that you can make. Like That would be like someone asking you, when did you choose to be heterosexual? It's who you are. They think that this is damaging to the Conservative Party, and the Conservative Party's got to purge those views. What do you say to those people? Uh, those are the same people who want to run corporate lobby firms and do communications and make money off the party. They're not the voice of the grassroots. Look, in Ontario, when Ford won the provincial leadership, he appealed to the social conservatives to win. When Patrick Brown did it, he appealed to the social conservatives. Jason Kenney, Andrew Scheer last time won with the social conservative vote people who in their electoral strategy is not to appeal to the social conservative vote want to force Richard out of the campaign because he will cause them to lose. Would you, this is strategic positioning by other candidates and it's, you know, just politics as usual. Would you be able to look the eye of Eric Duncan, the openly gay conservative MP who's coming on the show, or would Richard and say, I think you've just chosen, you're confused, you're not really gay, you've just chosen this, uh, would you actually look at someone and say that as if it's a medical condition that you're trying to fix? 
Look, I don't think Richard would have a problem saying that. For the record, that's what Richard says. I have slightly different views than that than Richard does, but I'm fine with what uh, he says. I'd have no problem looking Eric Duncan in the eye and saying, I'm proud that you got elected. I'm a full supporter of you as a conservative, but I disagree with you on some issues like gay marriage. That's but not just gay marriage. Say. That's what Richard Okay, that's what, but Richard's not just saying gay marriage. He disagrees with him on his fundamental identity, sir. That's a rights issue. That's a respect issue. That's not a choice issue. But make the case and argue it that Richard is wrong rather than shutting him out of the process. I think all Richard wants to do is say, look, why I come from a certain viewpoint, and he explains it, why, is this. Let me make my case as to why my public policy perspectives are the best. That's Richard's argument. He thinks the voters should decide. Uh, last question, uh, Brad Trost. You're the camp national campaign director for him, or chair rather, for him. But there might be other social conservatives who run. Uh, what is your message to, like if maybe Richard doesn't make the cut financially or the signatures, what will social conservatives do? Are, are you prepared to, what happened to you, you know, when you were an MP? The conservatives vote for a leader and then you essentially spend most of your time muzzled on the backbench as you had to do. Are social conservatives prepared for that same experience? I think the social conservatives are less and less prepared than they were in the past. They feel that Ford sold them out after they elected him in Ontario. They feel Patrick Brown sold them out after they elected him in Ontario. They feel Andrew Scheer sold them out after they elected him nationally. So I think social conservative party members are increasingly restive and want a voice that will speak clearly for them. All right, Brad Trust, I got to leave it there. I appreciate uh, you joining us today. Thank you, sir. Thank you. All right, when we come back, we get the response. Eric Duncan is the first and only openly gay conservative MP. Just watch that interview. He's standing by. So is Lisa Raitt. She's the co-chair of the leadership race. Can they prevent someone like Richard Decary from running? We find out next. Stay right here with Question Period. The original family was a man and a woman and children, and now it's everything that the Liberals brought. And because of that, I think uh, we, we need to uh, make sure that the, the term marriage is used for a man and woman. Those comments that Richard Decarie made to me this past week on Power Play, that being gay is a choice, exploded on social media and were widely condemned by prominent conservatives. But as you just saw before the break, people like former MP Brad Trost and many others defend Mr. Decarie's right to say it and to run. But some are calling for Decorey to be banned from running as a new conservative leader. Should he be? Is there a place in the conservative party for voices like that? Let's find out. Joining me now is Eric Duncan. He's the first and only openly gay conservative member of parliament. And Lisa Raitt, who's the co-chair of the organizing committee for that leadership race. Good to see both of you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Uh, Mr. Duncan, let me just start with you. You just saw Brad Trost. You've heard uh, Richard Decarey say that being gay is a choice. You tweeted back at him. What was your response? Well, I, I always start off when I have these conversations to say uh, at the age of 32, I've had more conversations in the last six months about my sexuality than I have my entire life. Uh, but uh, I also understand the unique role that I have in the party. Like you said, being the first openly gay member of our, of our caucus, uh, I can confirm that being gay is not a choice. Uh, and I think that there are millions of Canadians across the country, when they look at that statement, just shake their head as to why we want to go back uh, decades and rehash some of these things again. I think our country 
country, I think our party, particularly in a positive way, has come a long way in a short period of time for acceptance, for supporting equal marriage, and uh, I don't think people want to go back in that Is regard. there a place in your party for someone who you could sit beside who says, oh, by the way, I think that you're being gay is a choice. I don't support same-sex marriage. Could you sit in the same party as someone like that? Well, I think the important question to ask is, is from a discrimination aspect. Our party constitution and our founding principles of our party are pretty clear that you don't discriminate or treat anybody unequal uh, if it's gender, if it's race, if it's ethnicity, and if it's sexual orientation. So I think one of the things that the members of our party have to ask is, are these comments uh, socially relevant to who we are as a party and who we are as a country today. And I think, again, more and more people are evolving. And uh, I think over the course of the last couple of days since these initial comments were made, right. it has been wonderful to see the support from all different parts of our party, from MPs to volunteers to frontline volunteers, just reject us and say, we're not going back, we're not going back down this road again. Uh, Lisa Ray, I know you can't take a position uh, on who's in and who's out because I know there's a decision, but is there a mechanism to look at the comments that Mr. Decary said, who have been roundly condemned by Peter McKay, Pierre Polyever, Aaron O'Toole, Mr. Duncan and others, uh, is there a mechanism to say you're not green-lighted, you're not allowed to run? Absolutely. And we put the rules out on January 13th, and in there it says very clearly that there's going to be a questionnaire that you have to fill out. That questionnaire will be tested by a panel of LIAC who will then interview the potential candidate if they want to be a candidate. And questions will be put to them about what they've said in the past, what they've said in their questionnaire. But what Eric said is true. It's about the foundational principles of our party and whether or not they're going to agree that they must be upheld. But, but Brad Trost was just arguing that, you know, we don't have a formal position on same-sex marriage. We just rescinded the old line that was against it. So his position, for example, on same-sex marriage, his position that being gay is a choice, which uh, most people regard as way offside. He says there's a place for that. There's nothing that prevents me from having that position. Yep, and that's why the LEOC, which is the leadership committee, will absolutely have a number of people around that table to have these discussions on interpretation. But you couldn't you could use that to disqualify a candidate. I believe everything that the candidate has said in the past, what they answer in their questionnaire, is something that they can be questioned on to determine whether or not they're going to uphold foundational principles. We, do social conservatives, sir, have a place in the party? You just heard Brad Trost. Is that part of the conservative party? Yes, it is, and it has been, and I think will be going forward. But I think one of the things that I've been, uh, you know, seeing as a positive in the last couple of days, the number of people that identify as social conservatives to say that is not part of the social conservative uh, philosophy of today. There are a lot more and more every day, every argument, every person that shares their story opens up new hearts and new minds on this issue. But, but let me ask you, when Andrew Scheer was the permanent leader, he had a shadow cabinet, okay? 50 people were on his shadow cabinet out of, you, you know, that's almost half of the caucus. Mm -hmm. You were not part. He had been criticized for his position on LGBTQ issues and same-sex He doesn't include you on the shadow cabinet. Did you feel left out? Not at all. And let me be our party uh, on tokenism and those types of things soundly reject that, as do I. To be candid, I've heard sources say they offered you a position that related to gender equality and LGBTQ issues, and you rejected it because you didn't want to be seen as a token MP. Is that true? But I also say part of it is as well is there's a wide array of ways of serving. I talked to Andrew several times, and I continue those conversations with the leader's office, with my colleagues about that, and there's different ways to serve and give my opinion and to do that. So, like I said, I, I in terms 
terms of the shadow uh, cabinet aspect, I'm not disappointed at all. I'm not offended that I'm not a part of it. I'm a team player and I want to see us do well and grow forward. And there's different ways of doing that, a, a myriad of different ways. Uh, Lisa Ray, just because you've been the deputy leader uh, before, how now, it's a new world now, how does the social conservative movement, if, if Brad Trost and maybe others are going to carry the flag and defend someone like mm -hmm. Mr. Dickery, what position do they have in the big tent of a conservative party? It's hard for me to comment on that, given my position in Leoc, where I really have to be scrupulously uh, undecided and neutral is on that all a, okay, aspects how about this? of it. Is that, a is, that a, is that going to be a thorny issue for conservatives, as it was for Andrew Scheer? Mm. The membership's going to speak. The membership is going to have the next six months to figure out what they want in terms of a leader. And my goal is to make sure the process is fair, open, transparent. Last question to you. I, I, when I was talking to Mr. DeCarey, you know, I have to do my job too. I'm going to question him. When you watch that, forget just as an MP, but as a, just a citizen, were you personally hurt by those comments? Uh, hurt may not be the wrong word. Disappointed, I think, in looking at this leadership race is an exciting opportunity for our party. We're going to have a lot of great candidates in the discussion about going forward. But you tweeted and out that you would like to talk to Mr. Decoray about your, quote, choices. Obviously, ironic. if you could face him face to face, what would you say? Uh, you know, I, I think Canadians have evolved in this issue. Millions of Canadians have. And I look at my case. I, you know, being gay is not a choice. I was born this way. I'm proud of who I am. I'm proud to be a part of as elected member of parliament in the House of Commons as a Conservative, and uh, times have changed and evolved. Millions of people, maybe back a generation ago, have evolved their views, and it's a wonderfully positive thing. I came out in 2017 when I served as a rural mayor in small-town eastern Ontario, give a plug to the township of North Dundas and the, my uh, supporters there, and it was just total indifference. And just a context as well of how far we came. In the last election, my riding, Stormont, Dundas, South Glengarry, was the second most Conservative uh, percentage percentage in the entire country at just nearly 54% of the vote. We went up in the vote where in some parts of the country we went backwards. My message is it didn't matter and people have moved on, Canadians have moved on, they've been accepting and again every person that's sharing their story, more and more people each and every day are getting on board with getting with the times for lack of a better word. So uh, my message to party members, I'm not running, I'm not endorsing a campaign at this time, I have no vested interest in the candidate. I care about the future of our party and the direction and where I know we need to go to be socially relevant in the year 2020 and I'm going to be an advocate uh, on the sidelines over the course of the next few months making sure that I encourage our party members to go exactly in that direction and not rehash these battles that very very few people want to talk about. All right I'm going to leave it there I appreciate that thanks to both of you. Thank you. All right Coming up, we'll be watching closely to see how all this unfolds, but the Liberals say they're getting ready to get stricter on gun control. What will their plan look like, and what about the timeline? Can they even get it done in a minority parliament? MPs are up next to debate that issue. Stay right here with Question Period. We will be moving forward on uh, a ban on assault weapons because we know that uh, weapons designed to kill the largest number of people in the shortest amount of time have no place uh, in our communities. So gun control is moving to the top of the agenda when Parliament resumes tomorrow. The government has promised to ban assault rifles, crack down on gun violence, something that's been on the rise in some of Canada's biggest cities. But 
Would a gun ban in cities like Toronto and Winnipeg really help curb violence? Is it really getting to the nub of the problem? And in a minority parliament, can the Liberals get enough support from opposition benches to make it happen? Let's bring MPs to find out. Joel Lightbound is the Public Safety Parliamentary Secretary. Michelle Rumpel-Garner is a Conservative MP for Alberta. And Peter Julian is the NDP House Leader and an MP in British Columbia. Thanks for joining us all, Mr. Lightbound. i got to start with you. The Prime Minister said there's going to be a priority in the next couple of weeks, he said. There's going to be introducing legislation to ban assault rifles. What's an assault rifle? What exactly are you going to ban? Well, I, the Minister Blair has been, uh, has been clear, and it was a campaign commitment, that we want to ban military-style assault rifles so that have large-capacity magazines, so uh, essentially weapons that were designed for military uses. But that give are, me an example of that, because a lot of well, sporting one, rifles, like it doesn't mean, is that semi-automatic? Well, one that's been cited a lot, but I'm not going to go into details on the list. We're working with the RCMP on that, but the AR-15 is a good example of one uh, assault rifle that, uh, that, that was designed for its efficiency to kill people, and I think we campaigned on it. We We've heard loud and clear but from just Canadians. All I'm just trying to get, yeah. just before I get the response, you, you know, automatic weapons are already prohibited, right? Then there's restricted weapon categories. Right. What other weapons exactly will be prohibited? So these uh, semi-automatic that are uh, designed for uh, their efficiency at uh, uh, in military situations. So uh, the AR-15 is one example, but I'm, as I said, we're working on the RCMP on the list, but those are weapons that, that were designed for use in the military uh, that have no place in Canadian society. That's something we've heard loud and clear from Canadians. What do you make of that? I mean, uh, Bill Blair has said he doesn't want to demonize legal gun owners and he doesn't want to demonize sports shooters. Mm. Can they cut the line there? Well, first of all, I, we have to stop firearms violence in Canada. It's very important. The issue with this approach is that uh, it doesn't address the problem, which is the vast majority, I believe it's well over 90% of firearms that are used in violent crime are either illegally obtained or they're smuggled, primarily smuggled in from the United States. So the government is proposing um, confiscating just so many different firearms from people that are that are frank, frankly already banned in Canada. You, it, we, it's not the same laws as the U.S. Um, I think that in order to receive my restricted license, my, to be honest with you, I think the, the vetting was actually more strict than getting my cabinet clearance. Peter Julian, this has been something that's divided the NDP. A lot of your rural MPs, they don't want any kind of restrictions on guns. Uh, what will the NDP do? Will they support liberals on gun control? Well, we, we have to see the legislation, of course, Evan. I mean, we, the, what the NDP does is we, we, we look through the legislation as it's presented. Uh, we have no. those discussions, and, 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 then we, and then we move forward from there. But I, I, I do think there is no doubt if you ask Canadians across the country, particularly in places like Toronto, they are increasingly concerned about gun violence. And, and the reality is what we have seen both under conservative governments but also under the liberal governments is a failure to, to make the kinds of investments uh, so that the existing laws can be enforced. And we do have illegal weapons coming across from the United States. We have a, uh, an illegal market here in Canada where illegal guns are purchased and then sold on the illegal market. Uh, police do not have the resources that they really need uh, in order to enforce those, those laws. And I, I think all Canadians would share 
the goal of making sure that our communities are safe and that we start to reduce the levels of gun violence uh, that have reached disturbing levels in this okay, country. Okay, but I want I, to, can you so just, yeah, let me just get Mr. Light, just, can you just respond? Well, Michelle Rampo's raised this point, that you're, you're, it's a solution for the wrong problem. The problem is illegal guns coming in, not legal gun owners. How will this proposed legislation or gun control bans address that well, concern? Well, I, I think we have to look at this from a holistic perspective. When Madame Rampel says that we're demonizing law-abiding gun owners, that is so completely far from the truth. I don't think you need a military-style assault rifle to go hunting. That's what we're targeting: military-style assault rifles. Tell me what and and on the other hand, on the other, on the other, on the other hand, for law enforcement, for law enforcement, so we've given 86 what? million to CBSA uh, to better, um, better protect our borders and uh, prevent gun, gun smuggling across the border. Meanwhile, the Conservatives cut 900 million in the RCMP and CBSA. We've invested but, but, 250 okay, just, million just, in provinces. I just so I think we have a we need okay, a multifaceted approach. I get that, but just what? You know? Just before, just, I, can I get an answer to that question? If gun violence in cities is caused by illegal guns, as uh, many contend, although there's a debate on that, how will this ban stop the influx of illegal things, like illegal handguns, to stop the gun crimes? Well, it's part of it, it's part of the solution to ban military-style assault rifles. It's not the only answer to that problem. That's why we're investing in CBSA for the, the smuggling. That's why we want to put in stricter penalties in for illegal smuggling. That's why that's why we're moving forward, investing, giving provinces and to law enforcement uh, 215 million dollars so that they can fight ga gang violence across Canada and cities across <laughs> Canada. You're so about to spend a billion plus dollars on confiscation. You, why don't you just put that in the RCMP? It, look, as a law-abiding firearms owner myself, if, if, if I was the problem and my community was the problem, we would be the first ones to say more regulation because we're not the United States. But can you imagine how ridiculous it sounds for you not to be able to answer Evan's question and then say that you're going to spend billions of dollars on confiscation when there's already a ban? But, Michelle, how, do they, but how do the conservatives answer the question that a lot of... Uh, domestic abuse, suicides caused by people who are legal gun owners, and then in fact that it's not all illegal sm uh, firearms that are causing death. Cities have rising rates of handgun use. Sure. What is wrong with some kind of gun control in, in a lot of places in urban centers where people seem to want it? What's the conservative well, response to that? We already have very strict gun control, in very strict, some of the strict, most strict in the world. I mean, you can't just go and buy a handgun in Canada. The process for licensing is, is usually about a year. Um, you are subject to daily vetting. You have to store your firearms in very strict conditions. So you just want status quo? You, well, here's the thing. Like, you talked about suicide, same thing. Very, very huge problem. But when you talk about suicide with firearm, we have, you know, uh, tip lines. We have um, all sorts of checks on the licensing process around mental health. There, there, are, there are so many things that we already have in place that the issue is, is, is firearms that are obtained illegally. That's the problem. So any of the major incidents that have happened when you look at it these aren't licensed firearms owners and their guns were illegally sourced so why would we spend a billion dollars on this mr julian well uh, we take no lessons from the conservatives they gutted crime prevention programs when they were in power and the liberals like to talk about the investments they're making but the reality is when you look at the liberal investments across the country, in, in a place like Surrey, B.C., it, it basically means uh, one additional police officer can be hired. And when we look at the extent of the growing levels of, gr of gun crime, we have to make sure that the investments are made, uh, that we are removing dangerous weapons from the streets, there's no doubt about that, and that we have a thoughtful approach. All right, I, I got to leave it there.
Before we go, though, real quick, a lot of people, since Pierre Polyeva, Ron Ambrose, and Jean Charest are not running, people are saying Michelle Rempel uh, Garner is going to run. Are you considering a leadership race? I am concerned about the fact that Western alienation is not being addressed in Parliament by the Government of Canada. And um, the base of my party is in Western Canada. They voted for us to give them a voice. Um, I will be making sure, one way or the another, that that is, is addressed. In, in my tenure in this parliament. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. Okay, no decision. I gotta leave it there. Thank you, Joelle Lightbound, Michelle Rempel Garner, and Peter Julian. Coming up, the Scrum is here to unpack a very busy government agenda that kicks off tomorrow. Can the Liberals get it all done? We'll find out when the former NDP leader, Tom Mulcair, joins us on the Scrum. Stay right here with Question Period. As we head into the new parliamentary session, the message of our Liberal caucus is simple. Let's show Canadians that we heard them. Let's roll up our sleeves and work with our colleagues to make our country even stronger. Common ground does exist in this parliament, but it's up to us to build on it. Okay, tomorrow's a big day. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's minority government will finally be put to the test as the House returns. What's at the top of the agenda? Well, there's ratifying the new NAFTA. Canada's the only country, amazingly, that hasn't done so. There's also gun control, as we've already talked about. They'll be moving forward on an election promise to ban assault weapons. Can Mr. Trudeau get cross-party support on that? Oh, right, and there's a budget coming along. Let's bring in the scrum to find out what to expect when you're expecting minority government. Michelle Carpenter is a reporter with The Globe and Mail. John Iveson is a columnist and best-selling author with the National Post. Bob Fife is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for The Globe and Mail. And our special guest this round is the former NDP leader, current CTV political commentator, Tom Mulcair. Maybe he'll run for the uh, leadership of the Conservative Party. No one else seems to want it. Tom, you can break that news anytime. Uh, what do you expect? Uh, Justin Trudeau's got to learn the, the lessons of a minority government. What do you... What do you think the biggest challenges will be for him in, on Monday? I think one of the toughest files that he'll have in front of him is going to be Frontier Tech, a huge mine in the oil sands uh, that would produce 40 million litres per day of new oil, make it impossible to meet our Paris targets. He's going to be pushed to approve it by Christia Freeland, who's going to say, hey, you asked me to make nice with the West, you better approve this. This is the number one thing on Jason Kenney's agenda. Mr. Trudeau's got people in his cabinet, including the current and former environment ministers and the current heritage minister, Stephen Gilbo, a serious environmentalist, who are going to be saying, don't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Expect Mr. Trudeau to try to punt it forward, to stall a little bit, but eventually he's going to have to take a decision and it's going to be a very tough one. Bob, biggest challenge. Oh, well, look, it's always the unexpected. That's the one that always gets government. You know, is there another SNC-Lavalin affair that's happening? Which, by the way, the RCMP are still examining this issue, so it's, it hasn't gone away. Um, so uh, for the government, to me, it's always what they didn't expect. But there are big challenges. NAFTA, for example, is going to be easily passed the House of Commons. But they've got issues like Huawei and China. That's crucial. The Americans, for example, have legislation before the Congress and the Senate to, to curtail intelligence sharing with any of the five I countries that buy Huawei 5G. That's a serious issue for Canada. And they have so far not given an indication of where they stand. But And the cons Conservatives are officially on the record of saying ban Huawei. So to me, that is going to be one of the key issues. And if they do that, what does China do? Do they uh, right. bring more re repercussions against Canada, more economic sanctions? 
That's a tough issue, probably one of the most important ones. Well, here we are. It's Trudeau, Act 2. We're heading into the, you know, the real start of the second government here. It's a minority situation. I agree NAFTA is going to go right through pretty quickly. But I'm looking for areas where the opposition parties are going to try and play something to their advantage. On the panel here with the MPs, we're hearing about the gun control concerns from the Conservatives. The NDP want Pharmacare. So how are the Liberals going to work with the opposition parties? We were, I was in caucus this week with the Prime Minister. He's asking his MPs to be cordial, to put petty politics aside. How long are they going to be able to maintain that attitude? Yeah, I mean, I Less don't, than 24 hours, yeah, I mean, guess. Minority <laughs> governments are a little different. What are you looking well, for, John? So that's, I think that's the backdrop. Uh, you know, th this is a... I've been struck by how Justin Trudeau seems to have lowered the level of ambition uh, more more re aligned with the reality, which is a minority parliament, and spending constraints. I mean, he's... You know, the, the, the fiscal constraints that he's under, we're already seeing the debt to GDP rate going up this year, not going down as he promised. And that's before most of the election promises have been included. But minority governments are tough. The, the Harper government got 78% of its legislation through in its majority era, only 48% and 44% in the minority era. So you can expect the legislative agenda to basically go to half speed. We just had the gun debate, Tom. How divisive will that be? I remember in your party, like the rural Very ridings in the, in the NDP. Yes. This is an interesting because are the Liberals doing it because it's a popular or it's a wedge for both Conservatives and for the NDP? It's a wedge for them as well because they want those rural ridings as much as anybody else does. And even though we always talk about guns in relation to the big cities like Toronto and Vancouver and Montreal and say, okay, there's too much gun violence in the big cities, in rural areas people take obviously a completely different view. And I remember colleagues like Nikki Ashton and uh, going up to, to Timmins, Charlie Angus, people up there just saying, well, why would you even consider making lives more miserable for people who do depend on hunting, for example? Why would you not leave us alone on some of this stuff? Mr. Trudeau has the possibility, and Bill Blair is quite capable. Maybe he'll be able to come up with a formula that will be city-centric, trying to keep it in the big regions, making sure, for example, banning handguns, the assault rifle definition won't be as big a fight in the cities as it would be in rural areas if he can pull that off it'll be masterful but it's going to be tough I mean, and it's tough for all the parties there's a petition going around at the moment it's the second largest petition in Canadian history opposing these measures we don't even know what they are yet uh, okay just before I let you go it's looking a little more like a McKay Trudeau possibility I mean bar mm -hmm. is a long road yet for Peter McKay but but Bob is Peter McKay a dangerous potential opponent for Justin Trudeau yeah I think he is he's got a lot of a cabinet experience he is he can he can probably win seats in Ontario and Atlantic Canada which um, the, the conservatives that's a big struggle for the conservatives and he you know if they can hold what seats they have in Quebec uh, that means that Mr. McKay could uh, form a government so he has to be taken seriously uh, he is. Uh, he he has also got a much greater depth in the party that people in the Conservative par Party than people uh, think. I mean, I know, for example, the people say that he has an excellent relationship with Stephen Harper, that they are good friends. So it's not as if you know he's he's uh, uh, some so, so, uh, red Tory that uh, Conservatives are going to have to be They're worried still like about. A civil war. I think that's right. I mean, that, that, those those ideas, those those old schisms that we fall into one camp or other. I mean, this is ancient history for anybody over uh, under thirty-five, for one thing. Well also, McKay, yes, is, McKay is winning support from MPs, who, who, three or four of whom backed Erin O'Toole last night, but Ed Fass in the West, yeah. uh, Dean Allison in, in Ontario, Colin Carey in Ontario, uh, Pierre Poilus in, in Quebec. I mean, he's, got, he's going to unite this party, I think. 
And I think the one thing we should be watching for is how Peter McKay is trying to expand who he is as a candidate for not conservative leader, but prime minister. He's probably going to be brushing up on his French and looking west. All right, got to leave it there. I remember Stephen Harper brushing up on his French, but remember his coalition was Ontario in the west and kind of rerouted around Quebec. Tom Mulcair, John Iverson, thanks a lot. The rest of the scrum is sticking around and we'll be joined by Nick Nanos and Jenny Byrne. We'll continue our conversation about the state of the conservative leadership race. Tom Mulcair not in. Breaking news. Stay right here with Question Period. We're building a party that will protect and work for you, your family, a party that you can be proud of. And a party that is going to get ready and win and replace Justin Trudeau in the next general election. This was a personal decision. Uh, I believe it was the right one. To run or not to run, that was the big question for the likes of Pierre Polyev, Ron Ambrose, and Jean Charest. But in three successive days of stunning news, the hamlets of the Conservative leadership race decided that the slings and arrows of leadership were not for them. They're all out. But as the party is looking like Peter McKay will have a coronation, enter stage right and I mean far right, of another player. Potential social conservative candidate Richard Decaray exploded onto the scene when he appeared on CTV's power play and announced things like being gay is a choice. All these remarks have been roundly condemned by high-profile conservatives, including by Peter McKay. But should the party executive let a guy like that run? And what's the place for social conservatives in that party? And with Peter McKay as now the biggest name left standing, could Stephen Harper actually make a comeback? we got to ask. Let's bring back the scrum to find out. Michelle Carver is back. Robert Fife is back. Our special guests this round are the president and CEO of Nanos Research, Nick Nanos, and the former Stephen Harper campaign director who was set to work on the Pierre Pauly Ever campaign, Jenny Byrne. Man, uh, what, what a week. Nick, let me start with you. What is the big no from Ambrose, Pauly Ever, and Charest due to the race? Well, it basically sucks all the oxygen out of what should have been a very exciting race, which would have put a showcase on the Conservatives and them trying to move forward. Right now, what it looks like is that no one wants to be leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, except for Peter McKay and maybe a couple other minor candidates. And I don't think that's good news for a party that is competitive with the Liberals and actually could win the next election if they were able to generate interest and excitement. Jenny, I, I mean, you were set to work with Pierre Pauly. Like he had booked the room, he was ready to go. We thought he was actually going yep. to announce uh, today. Uh, were you stunned that he suddenly backed off? Well, this is uh, this has been a decision that uh, that that Pierre uh, had been thinking about. Uh, uh, for uh, for several days, uh, it was getting to uh, logistically uh, to the point in the campaign where uh, contracts were being signed and uh, and big checks were being uh, being written. And uh, when it came down to it, uh, like his statement said yesterday, his heart uh, his heart just wasn't fully in it, and he felt that if he was going to run, uh, he needed to be 100% in and, and 100% uh, uh, his heart behind it. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, I know last night he, uh, he, after he made the announcement, he he picked his daughter up from uh, from uh, from daycare and they went out for dinner and uh, uh, he he felt very much at uh, at peace with the decision. Uh, Bob, we're, I mean Quebec's now in play. I mean I, I don't know about you, I was stunned when everyone's dropping out. I thought these people thought this was you know the job that they might win and become the next prime minister. What do you make of the race now? Well, look, it, it, to, to next point. 
it's going to be quite boring. I mean, we were all looking forward to a really interesting high-charge leadership race with Ron Ambrose and, and Pierre Polyev and Peter McKay and Aaron O'Toole and goodness knows who else was going to be involved in this. Now that's not going to happen. I know people are looking to see who else could come into the race. Michelle uh, Rempel is probably going to come in now. There, pe people are trying to convince John Baird if he would come in or wow. Brad Wall. Brad Wall doesn't want to. He doesn't speak French. James Moore, a former cabinet minister from British Columbia, a very smart guy. They're trying to reach out to him. But I don't think that landscape is over. I think it's now going to probably be a coronation for Peter McKay, but not necessarily a bad thing because the Conservative Party can then get their act together in terms of policy. And this government could go down a lot earlier uh, with Peter McKay in charge, with everybody united around a leader next year or in the fall if they can force an election. Did the rules scare people off? Like the, the high bar of $300,000, 3,000 signatures. Did I know they were trying to only make serious candidates come in, but was it too high a threshold and it scared off some people? I mean, talk about the week of dinner time dropouts. 5 p.m., <laughs> three days in a row, you know, you're just waiting for the next one as the next day comes. You know, I think the rules may be part of this. And Mr. Polyev, you know, I'm not quite sure what exactly happened, you know, between scheduling that and then deciding to not um, go ahead. But it makes me wonder if the threshold is too high, in fact. And I guess we'll have to see in the coming weeks who throws their name in and if there are any concerns raised with this. Yeah, I wonder about Quebec. Nick, uh, there's lots of whispers about Stephen Harper jumping back into the race. Most of us around this table, and I'm intrigued to see what Jenny says about this because she worked so closely with him for so long. I don't think he's going to do it. There's no indication. But if he did, could Stephen Harper not only win the party, but in a rematch take on Justin Trudeau? Well, could he win the party? Absolutely he could win the party. You know, the reality is, is that Stephen Harper presided and created this newest iteration of the Conservative Party of Canada, and that is his legacy. So can he win a leadership? Sure. Can he win an election? Not likely. You know, for him to come back, he needs to say why he's coming back, how long he's going to come back for. It's kind of like the ghost of Christmas past. And, you know, we shouldn't forget that the fact of the matter is, is that he did lose the election in 2015. I'm not sure what Stephen Harper has to gain. He does have something to gain in terms of the Conservative Party being strong and to win the next election. But I'm not sure if putting his personal name on the ballot is the best way to accomplish Jenny, that. Jenny, just re real quick, uh, w could he, would he ever come back? Uh, I, he's, he, he is, uh, pr the Prime Minister uh, is, not, uh, is not coming back. <laughs> could he win a leadership race? Uh, yes. Uh, could he beat Justin Trudeau, in my opinion? Yes. Uh, but it's, uh, this is all a very hypothetical uh, conversation. But a heck of a fun hypothetical conversation. Let me just turn it, turn it around. Uh, this week on Power Play, uh, Richard Decaray, this potential mm -hmm. candidate from Quebec, came on, Bob, and he had these controversial, some people call them flat-out bigoted remarks, being gay is a choice, uh, yeah. rollback abortion rights. He says he's going to wave the banner of social conservatives. He's been condemned by almost every prominent conservative. Should he be allowed to run? And what place do social conservatives now have in that party? Well, first of all, he is not going to be allowed to run. They are not going to greenlight him. I've been talking to people in the National Council. They are saying no way to this guy. That kind of bigotry that he has said to you on your program is unacceptable inside the Conservative Party. And so he is not, in the end of the day, he's not going to be greenlighted. 
That's not to say that social conservatives don't have a role to play in the conservative party. They do. They have a, there are social conservatives in the liberal party as well. But, you know, so they have, they're, but they're not all on anti-gay or anti-abortion. These are, there are a lot of social conservatives care about issues that promote families and, and tax measures that promote families. So yes, there is definitely a home for them in the, in, in the conservative party. And I could not agree with Bob more. What the conservatives are trying to brand themselves as right now, and we're hearing this from Aaron O'Toole, who is another potential candidate, is as the bridge building party, the big tent, where you can bring your views to the table, but not do it in a way that makes you seem like a bigot or attacking you know, people's basic human rights. Uh, Nick, I, I, I get every party's a big tent, every party's got folks like this, but Decoree's views were condemned in a way you know, maybe it's because of what happened to Andrew Scheer and those issues that apparently hurt him. What do you make of the role of social conservatism, those issues in that party? They're a significant part of the conservative party. And I think the Decoray statement was mercenary. I think it was on purpose. I don't think it was by accident. He said those things on purpose because he knew he could mobilize 25 to 30 percent potentially of rank and file party members, not conservative voters rank-and-file conservative members to make himself a player in the race because the fact of the matter is that he's a second-tier challenger but he could at least get a respectable showing if he can mobilize those social conservatives so he's hoping to get in in order to make a statement and have a constituency within that party Jenny yeah, I think it's unfair to say that uh, Richard Dickery uh, represents the views of social conservatives in the Conservative Party. Uh, there is, there, social conservatives have a have a, a big role. They're part of our coalition. But what, what Richard Dickery said uh, was uh, was bigoted and wrong. And not only was it uh, condemned by. Uh, you know, conservatives across the board. It was condemned by social conservatives within caucus as well. So to say that he is uh, representing or or uh, saying the views that social conservatives uh, across the country hold uh, would be wrong. Well, okay, I, and maybe that's true. And, and, and he, he said it, Bob, with a divisiveness that I've never frankly seen. But Brad Trost, who's on this program, is wanted to be his campaign manager, still does. He came in fourth place last time. He is not apologizing for those views. No. Brad Trost claims that th this is the constituency and they don't want to be mild-mannered about it anymore. They're just going to be Look, uh, they're probably going to put up some kind of a candidate that's going to uh, represent a lot of the social conservative views, but there's a difference between that and bigotry. And this is what he... Uh, expressed to you on the program and so I, I think it's legitimate uh, for social conservatives if they find a candidate that they want to run and, and put their ideas out that that's fine but there's a big difference between that and promoting the kind of things that he was doing the kind of discriminating measures that he was he was promoting with you on, on that program yeah but last question to you Nick is it I'm just you know brand contamination happens. Whether this right. guy's allowed to run or not, this is an issue that conservatives have got to deal with. It dogged Andrew Scheer, now it's back again. I know that he's, they've been condemning this guy's views. Does this hurt their brand? Absolutely, if they let him into the race and if he continues to say the things that he's going to say, and if social conservatives happen to be attracted to him, regardless of whatever happens, it will be a poison chalice for Peter McKay. Because, you know, he talked about an albatross. This will be his albatross and the albatross for the Conservative Party come the next election if this continues. 
All right, I got to leave it there. Thanks to Nick Nanos, Michelle Carbert, Bob Fife, and Jenny Byrne. Of course, we've got our eyes on the evolving coronavirus story, and Parliament is back tomorrow. So please join me on Power Play at 5 p.m. Eastern every night on CTV News Channel for all the political news of the day. Thanks for spending part of your Sunday with us. We will be back here in seven short days.